Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Jason Klom. It's the Comedy on Vinyl podcast, and live via Skype is Harry Shearer. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And by here, I, I mean I'm there. Right, right. Specifically, you are actually here. You just sound very strange in person. This is... Um, so normally, obviously, we start off, you know, I give a year, I give an album, I give an artist. Um, I wanted to just talk with you about your influences. And also, I mean, here's the thing, you've been involved with so many of the albums we've talked about on the show already. Uh, any of these that you want, that you, you're up for talking about, I'd love to talk to you about, too. Well, um... The only one that I, I mean, I've, uh, yeah, I've played with a bunch of people, but the, the one that I, I can talk about with some knowledge is the uh, one that I had most to do with, which is a great gift idea. The, the one Credibility Gap album that I thought really represented uh, that group at its best. Um, but the, you, you also asked me to talk about uh, if, I, if I had an album or two that uh, had influenced me. Yes. And uh, the answer to that is a definite neon uh, capital letter yes. Uh, specifically, Stan Freeberg presents the United States of America. Oh, good, good. Uh, that is, it is easily one of my favorites that we've been introduced to, that I've been introduced to through the show. Uh, you know, I had a collection before we started the show, but as you can guess, you know, you, you know, a couple hundred episodes later, I've been exposed to a lot of new stuff. And yeah. that is a very, that is still a beautiful album. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were, uh, as you know, and as I'm probably the the listeners to this podcast know, there were really two different kinds of comedy records in the in the heyday uh, of that genre. One was recorded stand up routines, uh, which were recorded live, usually with an audience, uh, and the other were these produced records uh, that sort of started with. The uh, from to my ear with the recordings of the the goon shows from Great Britain mm-hmm. that traveled over here, uh, and then Freeberg started making these parodies of uh, pop hits in the fifties with a big band and and with full production and a lot of sound effects. And basically, he was a refugee from old radio. He had he had done the last network radio comedy show. He replaced Jack Benny. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he got kicked off of radio, the capital, you know, the CBS radio studio was about, uh, uh, I'm, I'm calculating now, about uh, eight blocks walk from the Capitol Records studio. Uh, <laughs> he just moved his act over there. Wow, that's the thing. I'm, <clears throat> pardon me, and I, you know, I'm, I'm actually this is this is pertinent because I'm I'm right now researching the perfect sample chapter to write for the comedy on vinyl book and sort of realizing what I, what I just got myself into by picking the sketch comedy chapter, because while Freeberg, you wouldn't, people don't instantly associate with sketch. I mean, most of this album, most of that album is a sketch album, even, yep. even with all the music on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically, it was, uh, the most grandiose imaginable project. It was a, uh, prospect for, a Broadway musical uh, done as a comedy album. Right. So there were sketches and there were songs, and, and Freeberg's idea was, okay, now let's move it to Broadway, which uh, bought him about four or five years of absolute misery. Uh, but, I mean, this was a record that the minute it came out, having been a fan of Freeberg's anyway, mm-hmm. this, I, this was just such a revelation. And I and uh, many of my friends, uh, you know, 
quickly memorized all of the all of the songs on the record and would just you know sing them to each other and bother everybody else with it. <laughs> it's you know and i don't know if in 50 years if anybody's everybody's so many different acts have tried to do let's do funny american history because why wouldn't you it's mm-hmm. an american thing to do uh but it's i don't know that it's been done as uh, for lack of a better word as tight as this album well you know freeberg came at it i think with uh, a distinctly to my ear and i i got to know him uh later uh-huh. uh, in several different guises i mean i was uh i i, I spent a month um uh, doing a piece for the New York Times magazine about him, which never ran. Wow. Uh, but we, we spent a lot of time together. And then years later, uh, he got around to doing the long-delayed part two. Yes. And uh, Dawes Butler, had his, one of his great members of his cast, had, had passed away. And of all things, he called me to do a couple of parts on that record. So I saw how he worked. Uh, with his uh, ex-wife, who was his, his his late wife, who was his producer and collaborator, um, and so I, I think going back to the the first record um, that he approached doing comedy about American history w- with something that most people don't bring to it, which is a great sense of of absurdity and silliness and very little ideology. Right. Yeah. Oh, it had a broad appeal because you didn't have to buy into a certain construct to enjoy it. It was just taking, it was just taking people off their off their pedestals a bit and saying, "Well, these really were real people, and they probably acted just like us, but they did this other stuff too," and, which is more a comedic than a satirical uh, approach. And I, I, I've always sort of thought that that's the perfect perspective to take. I mean, I understand that you know, if, if you're a satirist, you're 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 by nature going to skew things. And uh, although, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's not true. Maybe that's that's an inaccurate way to to describe it. Be- no, I think I think a satirist brings a critique, uh, and I don't think Stan brought a critique. I think he just brought a a in a way he was the successor to Jack Benny uh, in more than a time slot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because his comedy was based more on just let's just make the assumption that these are people like us with all of our flaws and go from there as opposed to oh these are a, a different breed uh, you know these are heroic and uh, people who, you know who don't scratch and <laughs> you know uh, pick their noses and all that stuff and I think he just brought that which is a, which is I say basically a comedic view of history or of, of, you know, current events or anything. I mean, um, I, I, I don't think one is better than the other, but I thought that that, that that marked Stan's approach to it, which was, you know, let's just imagine what these people were really like. Uh, take the wigs off and see who they really were. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was, you know, uh, it, certainly he had, he, he was not blind to certain realities. I mean, take an Indian to lunch is one of the best skewerings yeah. of uh, the American approach to the native population that anybody's ever done, and it's two and a half minutes, and it's you can hum it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. What's wrong with that? Yeah, and I, I guess if it's not specific, like you say, it's 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 not satire because, as you say, it doesn't. Uh, but but it's it it has those elements. It, it's it doesn't satirize anybody in, in particular, but it does take that 
it's it, it's a it's a weird line to walk where where like you say you're making everybody human and then that's where the comedy comes from but also you get to still pick apart some of the biggest hypocrisy in all of american history it's just very dense that way yeah yeah and it, it you know it, it's it, it 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 gives the indians the honor and the privilege of being human too right which which was the radical thing to do at the time, you know, when they were the savages and the red men. So, uh, you know, he, he was a very surprising guy. I mean, because of his role in, in making fun of pop music and, and then making fun of American history, um, uh, people uh, who were his big fans really thought he was a much more radical person than he was. You know, he was a very devout uh, religious person. Mm-hmm. His dad had been a minister. Oh, wow. So he, he came from a whole t- different angle. Uh, but he had this, um, you know, I guess what, what influenced me the most was that he harnessed really uh, serious musical talent to his comedy. Yeah, no, I mean that is uh, that is the one thing where where I've always every time we we talk about Freeberg's work, whether it's that album or whether it's a Child's Garden of Freeberg, which we just did recently, mm. um, <laughs> I I've always you would know better now. That, I mean, you did a piece. Uh, is by the way, is that piece available anywhere? No. Oh my god. I don't. I don't, I don't even know if I have it. Oh my goodness. Um, they had assigned a piece. Uh, you know, this was. <clears throat> He was just leaving. He had left comedy. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had left the recording uh, side of comedy and had gone into advertising for pretty much full bore and pretty much invented uh, humorous advertising. Right, right. Uh, and and was making a lot of money and was you know revolutionizing the advertising business, uh, taking the, the 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 piss out of uh, clients uh, as they're called, mm-hmm. and making fun of them and, and enriching them. Uh, because it made people like the the client and therefore the product. That was his theory. Um, and the New York Times assigned a piece about Freeberg and making that transition. And they'd assigned it to a, a, a friend of mine, a freelance writer named Michael Lydon. And Michael, uh, it turns out, was busy taking LSD in <laughs> Mendocino County at the time. <laughs> And couldn't be bothered, and so he called me and said, "You know, would you like this assignment?" And I said, "Sure," because uh, I was doing freelance writing in those days. So I I picked it up and and spent all this time with Freebird, and sent the piece in. And I was really I, I was coming at it from a, a an irritating kid point of view, which was you know sort of disappointed that Freeberg had uh, left. The world of comedy and, and satirical comedy behind, sure, uh, and and so it was, you know, sort of home, home, homing in on that, but not unpleasantly. I mean, we really did spend a lot of time together. And the piece goes into the New York Times Magazine, and the rejection says this piece assumes that people know who Freeberg is. And I thought, well, why did you assign it? <laughs> didn't know who he was. You know, you're assigned it with this angle of, you know, why did he go from comedy to advertising? Right, and. You're, there's there's a, an assumption there that the that the pronoun is represented by somebody that people know. Yeah. Wow. So now. Oh my God. Well, and I guess, and I apologize. So I I I, uh, I, I kind of drifted there, but my, but <laughs> the purpose of asking you does that exist is a I want to read it, but since it doesn't probably exist, well that sucks. But uh, it sounds like an amazing experience. What is your perspective on the way? 
and the reason for him tearing apart pop comedy the way he did because there's nobody possibly more potentially adept at doing it but it does sometimes it reads as like i can't tell if there is some bitterness there or if it's out of pure love or if there's a mix he hated rock and roll absolutely did okay he hated rock and roll he came out of you know the earlier kind of music and thought that rock and roll was he he viewed rock and roll the way most uh, people who were fans of of rock music now view hip hop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just put it that way. Um, so he came at it with you know the view that this was barely music. It was radically oversimplified and 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 pathetically under under uh, talented. Mm-hmm. And um, that, he he did have a critique. Yeah. That was the thing with with the music parodies. He did have a very strong critique. Um, and, and, um, that could to rock fans read his bitterness. Um, but he, he didn't limit it to rock and roll. I mean, he, he did a wicked parody of Harry Belafonte's pseudo uh, Car- yes. uh, Caribbean, uh, banana boat song, mm-hmm. you know, which was basically kind of tin pan Caribbean alley. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he, he also tore a new one for, uh, a guy who was making, a huge number of uh, hit records in, in the mid fifties, Mitch Miller with yeah. these horrible uh, <laughs> reverb drenched uh, unison singing uh, male choirs. Um, and uh, the one that he t- picked was the yellow rose of Texas and just you oh, know, right. ripped, it up, ripped it up one way and down the other. So it wasn't just rock and roll. He just was, was hating what was on the, or, or was uh, picking apart what was on the hit parade. But he did have a special animus for rock and roll. That's what's just so crazy to me is that he's clearly, was clearly a brilliant comedian and clearly had this sharp eye towards what a very like, not single-minded, but very focused when he put together something. But also he's got this just grumpy old man aesthetic to him that just blows my mind yeah, com- compared he, with that. He, he, <laughs> he wasn't, he was, he was a, a, a traditionalist, you know, in a lot of ways and especially, and, and musically too. But, you know, the thing that uh, pervades the, the LP, the, the, the United States of America, volume one, as mm-hmm. it was called, even when it came out, right. uh, is the perfectionism. He was a total fucking perfectionist. Yeah. And I, th- the conclusion I came to uh, when I wrote the piece, um, just I remember, was that that's what drove him. You know, he had had a little fling with television. Uh, I think a couple, I think ABC gave him a show uh, for a little t- bit. Um, but the only place where he could get the budget that would allow him to do things on the, with the perfection that he craved was advertising. Yeah. He went there for the perfectionism. Man, that's, oh, that's crazy. Well, you know, and it's so, fu- uh, that's the other thing too about this. Um, I just, I just grabbed the, the LP just to take a look at it, just to see, uh, I guess just to make myself sad. Cause I'm not sure how many of these people are still around, frankly, who are, who are on the album. Um, but the, just the sheer production value on this, like in terms of sound effects too, which is mm-hmm. one of just it's just one of my favorite things about sketch or or great comedy albums. It's just so beautifully put together. So not, and I again I don't know how much of that was him, but again I'm sure at the end of the day the final say was you know that echo should be you know less Mitch Miller and more me. He was he was uh, you know from having been around him, having watched him do the the second record, uh, 
I think there was not a choice that he was not involved in. Yeah, uh, he, he that's what he loved, you know, was making all those choices to, to get to something that he'd heard in his head and he wanted to uh, replicate it out in the real world. I just love that this is a time period, and I'm not trying to too, be too heavily nostalgic, but this is a time period where you had that as an option. Well, uh, you know what? I can write a thing, and it'll be an LP, and this will be a thing that maybe maybe as many people will buy as bought the first family. That'd be great, but, you know, you can only hope. Uh, yeah. Just that this was an option. Well, you know, there are these little little windows that open up from time to time. I mean, uh Ten or so years later, the window opened up uh, again, mm -hmm. uh, forced open, I guess one could say, by the Firesign Theater. Sure. Uh, uh, and and we walked through that window uh, or crawled through that window long enough to do the record that we did, the Credibility Gap at, at Warner's, uh, and then it closed right up again. Um, so, you know, you can't look at any media... My feeling is you can't look at any medium as as your home because uh, the uh, opportunities uh, come and go the window opens and closes for anything that's not uh, resolutely um, of the moment commercial uh, and sometimes uh, people in an industry like rec records or later on radio or uh, FM radio or later on cable TV Sometimes they're at a point where they don't know what the formula is, and that's the magic moment. And then when they figure out the formula, it's goodbye. <laughs> right, right. Uh, was there was there another album that you had in mind besides this one? Because it did sound like you said you, you, you might have had another one that influenced you kind of heavily as well. Well, this, this was the most influential, but I mean, I, I, I grew up on Bob and Ray. Mm. So anything that they put out on record was was, you know... I, I never thought their records quite reached the apex of of their work that the the daily radio output did. But okay. uh, I thought in I think Inside Bob and Ray was the one that got the closest because it was basically just a collection of great radio sketches. Okay, uh, you know, and and there again, um, they to me marked the the move forward from Freeburg in a way because Freeburg was still harking back to that world of, of comedy audio comedy where maybe you even had an audience but you certainly had a big band and sure. had a lot of cast of characters and, and Bob and Ray moved it into a, a little studio where it was just them and one, one sound effects guy uh, and they were the world uh, of all these characters and that you know that's sort of the more modern approach to doing uh, audio audio comedy um, yeah, they, they influenced me totally. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess the more I think about it, because I think the one album of theirs we did, uh, Phil Proctor picked uh, The Two and Only, uh, uh -huh. which is a great album, but it's also, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's their Broadway show. It's a live yes. stage. Yes. So yes. It, it's a different experience than what you're talking about, which is sounds like just 100% the precursor to what podcasts have now taken for granted as if you want to do comedy. It's two people in a room. Yep. But almost never sound effects, though. I mean, they, they at least had that over on. Yeah. Yeah, they had sound effects. They had, you know, they had a, a a great engineer who was a sound effects man and also was the, their music guy. You know, f found all the all the great theme music for everything they did, um, and that was, you know, they really did invent that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, starting out in in on the radio in Boston in the middle of the afternoon, entertaining 
Boston Housewives, mm-hmm. and then and then moving to New York, and and it, 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 the two and only is great because you get to hear how well they could work at audience. Right. Uh, um, you know, it, it, all those years closeted in in radio studios of various sizes of smallness uh, did not mean that they could not work an audience, and they, they that 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 album shows that they could. But I mean. What what their bread and butter was was sitting across from Mike's in a, in a room and and I think inside Bob and Ray is the name of the record, very obscure record, uh-huh. but uh, that's the one that I I really loved. Did uh, I mean I uh, the assumption might be since you've done so much musical comedy that Freeberg was the bigger influence, but did you ever listening to Bob? I mean, did listening? I, I'll just say this, uh, just get it out of the way. Hmm. Watching, watching you and all of the folks that you're associated with made me think when early on that I could do improv. Like everybody else, about 15, 20 years ago, we all mm-hmm. thought we could do improv from watching you guys. Did you, from listening to like a Bob and Ray, did you like, oh crap, I can do this? Was there was there ever a moment of that? Oh God, yeah. I mean, that was what I wanted to do. Um, and when I got with this group, which was originally on the radio in Los Angeles, called the Credibility Gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we were doing three 10 minute shows a day. And I thought I, this is 10 years after I had been, you know, listening to Bob and Ray thinking, God, I wish I could do that. Now yeah. I was doing that. Um, by the way, apropos of improv, you know, um, neither Christopher, well, I, I can't, I'm, I'm going to maybe say more than I know, but I don't, <laughs> I think, I think this is true. Uh, Neither Christopher nor Michael nor I had uh, studied improv, uh, taken an improv class, uh, been in an improv group, uh, fancied ourselves as improv artists. Uh, Spinal Tap came not from a desire to do an improv movie, Mm -hmm. but from a sense that the only way to make this movie look as if it's a documentary for real uh, was to do it uh, improvisational. Yeah. It, 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 improvisational style. Well, to it, be f- it, sorry, it was, a, it was a choice that came out of what we wanted the movie to look like, not what we wanted to do. If it had been a movie that had come out of the Second City, and this is in no way to crap on them or the, or what they do and how they teach people, it would feel it wouldn't feel so natural. I mean, there might even be an element, and I don't know. I'd have to rewatch. It's been a while since I've seen it, but there might be an element of it feeling very simple. I mean, again, even even the, the type of improv you're doing, I could be wrong, but it, it doesn't feel like, well, here's the game, here's the setup, here's the this, no, the this, the this. No, there was no, there was, you know, what what we, because we, as I say, we we hadn't, I had been a fan of the, of, of several improv groups. Sure. And had seen a lot of their work and knew a little bit about how they worked. Um, but what we were just, we were, we had tried writing a script and uh, realized that was not the way to do this movie. Um, and so the, we wrote uh, an outline of what happened in each scene. And, so, and, and this has been sort of the through line for Christopher's improvisational movies ever since. Right. The job of the performers is just to tell the story of that scene, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so be that person in that scene telling this story. And uh, it, it's not about games, and it's not... I mean, it, it, the one thing that I think we all uh, took from uh, what we know about improvisational theory is it's more about listening than talking. Yeah. 
and and that, but that's true of act, that should be true of acting anyway. That sure. should be true of all acting. Um, so you know. Anyway, we, 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 we've wandered off of comic and violence. <laughs> well, well, we can get back very quickly because this is making me think of in terms if, – if, if I was to look at – if somebody were to tell me at this point, oh, credibility – most of the guys from the credibility gap are going to make a movie about rock and roll. And at the same time, if you just said the guys from National Lampoon are going to make a movie about college, the immediate thing I think of is, is X-rated. It really doesn't feel like – like you guys must have had to tone yourselves down to – because it's so – like just listening – just th- if I think about a great gift idea um, – and actually, side note, I actually really like floats. I, but but <laughs> I really do enjoy it. But if we're going to talk about uh, a great gift idea, there's mm-hmm. some really harsh stuff in there that you maybe just couldn't – maybe it just wouldn't translate to a film. I don't know. But, you know – Well, did you ever hear uh, um, Bronze Age of Radio? Uh, yes, I have, but only the once. And I uh, – you know, uh, well, I've heard great gift about idea the, a bunch. About the harshest thing you'll ever hear uh, us do was on Bronze Age of Radio. Um, and – um, it was sort of indicative of, of what we got away with um, in, in that era, which was there was uh, somebody, you know, everything we did was was based on a news story. That mm-hmm. was what it all was generated by. And there was some news story long forgotten about somebody complaining about a commercial being racist. And yeah, okay. our response was, you think that commercial was racist? <laughs> Listen to these. And we just had a fucking field day with, okay, here are the most racist commercials we can imagine. <laughs> See what you think of these. Okay, yeah. And they were done in this style. And then because we were very uh, interested in form as well as in uh, satirical content, um, so there was a second level of the joke, which was, there was a guy, uh, uh, Channel 13 in Los Angeles, uh, used to show old movies on Saturday and Sunday nights. And, um, and in between, you know, in the commercial breaks, rather than showing regular commercials like you see on television, uh, there were these weird, different commercials. Uh, I figured out, I, you know, I, I, I always follow my nose where this stuff happens. Oh, this looks weird. Why is that? It was a guy who, I don't know if he was hired by the station or if he bought the time and then turned around and sold it to these, these advertisers. But he went out with his little, little 16, Super 16 camera and shot these commercials for these various retailers. And then he narrated the commercials himself with his big voice, Fred, <laughs> named Fred May. And, and, and the opening sort of teaser line or the, the end tagline was done in very heavy slap echo by his wife, Gloria. Ooh, I like the boots at, you know, this stuff. So, and you'd see four of them in a row. That would be a commercial break. It's four Fred May commercials in a row for different little establishments. So that was the, the, the form of the racist commercials was four Fred May commercials for, oh. you know. It was, and it was just the strangest, but, you know, outrageous and transgressive in every way imaginable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this. That's another thing too. That uh, being born of a certain age, I'll never be able to quite relate to. Is that there's this moment, 
again, around this period, around the same time National Lampoon's doing stuff where if I listen to it, if, if, if I'm, I guess if I'm in a super sensitive mood, I mm-hmm. might, I might miss the satire if, because again, because it's just so full bore, it's just full fucking steam ahead on some of this but, shit. But, you know, a, a lot of it is just to make us laugh. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if four people who listened to that sketch when it was on the radio said to their 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 smoking companion wow those are that's just like those commercials on channel 13 right you know but it 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 gave us an organizing principle for doing this transgressive uh idea Mm -hmm. and that's you know in a way um it's it becomes irrelevant whether anybody gets that level it's just that's what we needed to kick us into into high gear and 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 get us to do the piece and um you know when you're doing uh two a, a show or two a day um <laughs> that's what you need it's just, right um, you know oh how would we do this oh i got it we'll do it this way and then you go how do you do something though that is potentially so high-minded as hey guess what guys we're going to take down racism but at the same time, it's just it, it's just a big fuck about for a while too. Like there's a real it's a it's a tough line to walk, isn't it? It is, it is, and it and you know you have to you have to trust yourself that um, and your audience that they know where you're coming from. You you can't be too dainty about saying now. Remember, please, we're not really the racists, <laughs> right? Uh, so, um, but you know that's that's. That's what I guess what we carried, I and the people I work I, I've been working with, uh, all the way through. I mean, the the head of marketing. This is again veering off for a moment. The head of marketing at the alleged film studio that released Spinal Tap said to us like two weeks before the movie came out, guys, don't you think you have to like in the first thirty seconds of the movie wink to let people know you're kidding? Oh my god! Yeah, literally. He no. Said, yeah. No. So no. No. Four no. of us. We all four said unison. No, we don't. Thanks. Uh, so that's, but that's the same thing, you know, no, we're not the racists. So, you know, um, you have to trust the audience that they, and I don't know, I don't know if, 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 uh, one could do that. Well, it was a product of its time and and you can't ever say, okay, well, we couldn't do that now. One might never get the impulse to do that now, but, um, whether you can trust the audience in the same way. Uh, I mean, I, I assume you do. I still make comedy every week, and I assume yeah. that the audience gets it, and uh, I, I'll, I'll transgress from time to time myself. But, um, you know, in, in, in that era, if you were making fun of a racist, you could have them talk like a racist. Yeah. And you can't do that anymore. Yeah. It's... <laughs> On the other hand, I got fired from uh, a radio station in Los Angeles in 1975 for saying the word penis on the air. Uh, Are you, for what, really? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it, it, it's a long story why. It was, it, it was, a, it was as a part of a joke, uh-huh. as, as a part of a, sat, a parody of, a, of a, something that was very popular on the radio in those days. And the general manager of the station actually said when he fired me, listen, I could have understand if you had said shit or fuck, but penis? <laughs> Now, of course, Howard Stern gets half a billion dollars for saying penis every day. Of course. But you can't have a racist talk like a racist. Wow. That is, uh, there's a lot going on there. Uh, Too much to delve into, I I guess. Well, it's it's my law of of conservation of taboo. Uh Uh-huh. 
there's a there's a standard amount of taboo in a society, but it moves over time to yeah. different to, attaches to different things. I guess that's true. I it's up to tolerance. It's up to you know media. It's up to uh, personal preference, I suppose. But yeah, that's wow. Um, and it's also up to Mark Furman. Yeah, of course. Yeah, naturally. <laughs> Do you okay? So I, I I do want to ask you about something. This actually, I was just thinking about this. Uh, I don't know why. It, 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 the other day, I was just thinking about how people are complaining about Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, and I understand everybody's complaints. But then I s- immediately got to thinking about your Johnny Carson on 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 a great gift idea, which is you know, if you want to talk about scathing, it's pretty wonderful. It's I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it's the whole half of the album, right? Um, or no. just about. It's 13 minutes. There we go. Okay, that's right. Okay. Very long, though. and But uh, obviously infinitely listenable, but there's this... I mean, you had this opportunity to shit on an American icon, and I'm I'm obviously... But I want to know what the impetus behind it was. Um... (laughs) Besides the fact that I think most people know that Johnny Carson was secretly a lot like that behind the scenes, maybe more than what you're actually portraying, but well, yeah, much more, uh, <laughs> a much meaner person uh, from everything we can find out now. Yeah. Um, it had, it had, um, like most of the sketches on that record started out as a sketch on a radio show, which meant there was some news story behind it. I think it had something to do. Uh, Rickles was the guest on, in, in that sketch. Um, a man whom I've come to like and admire greatly, by the way, in the in the recent years, Mr. Rickles. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it had something to do with somebody evincing surprise that Rickles had uh, attacked them when they were on the Tonight Show, or made fun of them when they were on the Tonight Show, or something. And so we just thought, what 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 do you expect? And it, it was just okay. Um, but I, I don't know if that was the same. It, I, it definitely involved something to do with Rickles and the Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. Those choices were made for us, and then we just went, okay, so uh, let's let's do one where you know there's a guest on from this uh, gay organization, and then Rickles, and you know, and <laughs> we know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was it. I think it was a, a person from gay. I, I don't know. Anyway, that's what made us do it, um, and. Then there was all of the sort of built-up sense of of Carson as this very middle-road kind of... I mean, by that time, he had a clothing line, like anybody (laughs) wanted to dress like that. Um, And he had this, you know, servile uh, uh, sidekick, you know, Uh laughed too hard at everything he said, Ed McMahon. (laughs) Um, And... That very kind of clubby scene, showbiz scene that that show embodied, mm-hmm. um, it, and you know, as a as a student of comedy or lover of comedy, my kind of mildly suppressed outrage that Johnny had just stolen most of his bits from his betters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd stole from Gleason. He stole from Winters. He stole from Steve Allen. Uh, all of his best-known bits were basically total lifts from um, those other guys. Right. Uh, so it was just seemed to me time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and we'd done it on the radio. It was kind of good, but we thought, man, we could do a really great version of this for the record. And uh, 
we had a wonderful engineer at Warner's, Don Landy, D-E-E, a uh, brilliant guy and just a lovely person to spend hours and hours in a, in a studio with. Uh, and I, I gave him certain technical challenges to uh, uh, accomplish with that piece. Uh, we actually hired the guy who sweetened most of the sitcoms. Really? Uh, yeah, so he comes in with his laugh machine, and we get to watch that at work. Wow. I mean, and uh, say, you know, okay, we want a little, like a, a naughty titter here. He says, okay, good. And then he covers up his little machine and switches out his little little tape. Uh, they're not really cassettes. They're, they're cartridges of some sort, little mm -hmm. mini cartridges. And then he plays this weird keyboard that he's got, and as he plays the laugh, <laughs> he kind of half-silently does the laugh along with it so he's he's like he's like a singing organist except on a laugh machine it's fucking amazing wow god that's so good and for the record it might now be my favorite carson once i was finally introduced to it i, I it's just there's some, there is something about your impression that's just i don't i don't know what it is it just it's like there's this extra filth to it maybe yeah. maybe well, I mean, there's also this sense that there was such a formula to it all sure to his jokes uh that's you know in in the monologue and in in his comebacks it all has a a, a grating sameness to it which is one of the things we were pointing out uh and uh, uh so there's that and then um i don't know if this fed into that because i'm i, I would have to review the chronology mm -hmm. but we certainly had a a very uh unpleasant experience with the tonight show i was so, gonna ask okay yeah uh, we were uh, this has to be ooh, chronology yeah maybe 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 this happened before um we were doing uh, a live show credibility gap and um a talent uh, coordinator from the Tonight Show came down to see us. Had I think he'd been invited to see, you know, what in our live act could work on the Tonight Show, and uh, and we had a lot of different kinds of sketches. And he said, and we one of them was a fake daytime talk show uh, called the Danny Wade Show, where uh, <laughs> the uh, DC Comics had just. Uh, uh, come out with uh, an anti-drug thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the sketch was uh, this horrible, bland daytime talk show, the Danny Wade show, you know, afternoon in Cleveland, local TV talk show. Mm -hmm. And the guests were Superman and Batman. Plug <laughs> 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 the anti-drug thing. And um, so that was the sketch that the talent coordinator from The Tonight Show thought we should do on The Tonight Show. And we were saying, really? Mm -hmm. Take off a talk show? You think that's... No, no, really. That is it. So we go there, and he, and, and we, and he says, uh, calls and he says, can you guys come to the studio just to do a run-through the day before for camera? Mm -hmm. We said, okay. And we get there, and he says, now look, it's just for camera. It doesn't, it, don't, you don't, it doesn't even have to be a performance. You can go through it like, you know, double or triple speed. They just want to see who's, you know, get the, get the shots. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we just rattle through it without any performance to it at all. And then he comes ashen-faced and says, guys, 
um, I'm sorry, but um, Johnny was in the control room uh, during that, and uh, he he's, he doesn't want that on the show. <laughs> Wait a minute! You said you said you said. <laughs> boy, oh boy! Yeah. That and how? I mean, okay. I'm assuming this is your shot. I mean, I know what the Tonight yep. Show means at the time. This is your shot. Yep. And it just falls yep. the fuck to the floor. Oh my god. Yeah. So that may have that may have influenced the piece on the record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's 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 understandable. Um, but Jesus. the piece was but the piece was written before that. Yeah. But it, it may have impelled us to say, you know, if 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 the and I don't recall whether there was any discussion about whether the whether the uh, here's Johnny should be on the re- where's Johnny should be on the record. But mm-hmm. the, if there was, that might have slightly put a finger on the scale. You know, the assumption is when you were writing the Carson thing that you're writing this with no fear. Is that absolutely the case? Because none of you were, you know, A-listers. You're you're just, you know, I mean, you're doing radio. You're doing albums. Is it, I mean, is it just completely no fear that you're writing this with? Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I sound a little rueful as I say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, but look, I mean, I, 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 I live that thing to, to this day. I mean, I've been, I've made fun of most of the people, uh, uh, in the New York media news scene. Mm-hmm. And, and then when I had a, a serious documentary, uh, a few years back about the flooding of New Orleans, um, I actually allowed myself the privilege of being shocked that, uh, None of them would give it the time of day. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's uh, I was, yeah. For a second, I was going to say, do you miss it? But obviously, you don't. Obviously, I mean, I know you're you're well known for having principles, and uh, and and I love that as a comedian and a satirist that you can still do that and still also be funny. It's it's hard. Well, I mean, fortunately, I have a day job. Sure. Uh, so uh, that that cushions the impact of a lot. That that phone will stop ringing. You're shortly. a receptionist. That's your day job, right? If I'm not right. mistaken, you're just yeah. doctor's not in. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it it's it's not an easy line to walk. Um, and um, I guess, I mean, look, I had I had uh, at, at the age of 35 a taxable income of zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never had kids. Right. And that, it, it does, you know, um, if you're not making the, the decision for other people, you're just making the decision for yourself. It makes it a little easier if, if you're if you're having to uh, take that risk and it's uh, your kid's college uh, on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are changed. Things are different for sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this and thinking about just the credibility gap and the fact that, I mean, uh, you know, in, in, in reading up a little bit more about your influences, realizing that, uh, you know, uh, you know, you, you acknowledging, uh, fire signs impact. And I didn't even realize you had been in one of David Osman's albums. I wish I'd, I had, I had no idea. There is this at, at this period, there's a lot to do with either making fun of old time radio or you, I mean, you guys specifically like to, take apart old film strips, like picking on that kind of stuff. Like there is this, that's another thing about this era of comedy where, uh, post-war America was just, uh, you know, in your subconscious and you, I guess you probably had no choice, but to spew like that up onto, uh, you know, onto an album and make fun of that. 
I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm because I think we all take it for granted as this nostalgia thing. But I think it must have been something different for you as you're making it. Uh, you're purging these things that were uh, poisoning your brain as you were growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, look, this is this this gets into uh, more serious stuff. But I mean, this was an era uh, where we were turning around and seeing everything that we had imbibed as uh, growing up. Uh, as being kind of brain poison. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're reacting against it. Uh, and so um, the image that, that sort of stays with me from that is that people would go to midnight movies to uh, laugh at the uh, uh, film shorts versions of uh, Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had been made 10, 15 years earlier, uh, and laughing at it, at the, at the simple-mindedness of it. Right. Because uh, we're in the middle of a hideous, complicated um, war. And something clicked for me the first time, and this is now some years later, the first time I heard a um, a high official who was either in that cohort or just slightly older say with a straight face we know who the bad guys are hmm. and, and I realized okay that era is over we're back to taking this that that programming seriously right that are <laughs> that once again it's proved that comedy and satire doesn't work <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're right. That was dark. That, uh, that, that, that was heavy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, oh, boy. I, it, it, I guess the thing is, the more I think about it, I think about this era of making comedy. Um, again, working mostly without a net to use a fucking overused phrase. But I mean, I'm 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 of a generation of people who's wearing that garbage they grew up with on their shirts constantly, and I count myself among them. I'm not necessarily proud, but I'm I you know I, I'm a zombie in some ways, and I try to fight it, but. I do want to know, like, well, you know, and then the funny thing is at the same time, like, I'm now speaking to a man whose voice I've been listening to for most of my life, mm-hmm. and <laughs> who's been involved with the best of, and maybe, I mean, I understand your opinions about the later years, but I mean, uh, you know, the best of the comedy that I grew up with as a kid that also had this equally pop culture, like, I had a, literally had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Simpson shirt, don't ask me what that was, that was a wonderful mm-hmm. bootleg, but... Oh. You know, uh, there is this fight, and I'm I, I and I, I don't know what the moment's going to be for me. Shouldn't it have been nine eleven? Maybe, but I don't know what the moment's supposed to be for this generation of comedians to do something new. Well, you know, I I, I, I don't know. Um, I think that uh, the um, the the um, the thing to me that's that's always going to be new is um, to just do without the formula. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I look at uh, the comedy movies that get cranked out now, and it's it's no different in a way than than when I was coming up. You know, there's a formula, and some of them succeed and some of them fail, but that doesn't dissuade the uh, 
people in charge from believing in the formula, even though its batting average would get you back kicked back down to the minors. Um, and you know, you it's always easier to sell something if it if it uh, partakes of the formula. I mean, we got turned down by every major studio in Hollywood when we were trying to pitch Spinal Tap. Yeah. Uh, because it didn't wasn't the formula, and and even down to when the movie was about to come out, and um, and and you know this is not to say that the formula is bad. Sure. Um, the um, first ad that the studio wanted to put out for Spinal Tap was basically a uh, to put it charitably an adaptation of the ad for uh, Airplane. Hmm. The ad for Airplane had an airplane fuselage tied into a knot. Mm-hmm. The ad wanted to do had the, the neck of a guitar tied into a knot. Ah, of course. And we said, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but if they wanted to sell it as if it was the, the going commercial formula of the time, even though it wasn't. Uh, that's how hard it is. Even when you've gotten to make the thing that's not in the formula, they want to try to convince the audience that it. No, it really is. Yeah. Um, so it's that's ever new, is just to go against that. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I've gotten down, us down a dark path. So let's go back real quick <laughs> to either either maybe another comedy album that you loved. Uh, hell, we can talk about Freeberg again. I don't care. We can talk about what I'm. I am just curious a bit more about your influences because you're one of the. Well, you know, okay. Go ahead. I'll, I'll give you the other one. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is um, which is amazing, and I, I amazed a friend of mine by playing a, a couple of tracks from it. Uh, maybe six months ago and said, guess when this was made? And he couldn't even get within a, a decade or two of imagining it was made in 1959. And it was, uh, I forget what the original name of the record is. Um, it's most of it has been gathered on the best of sellers, uh, Peter Sellers, mm-hmm. but the original record is, is called something else. Anyway, there are, are two pieces that stand out um, that are just astonishing. Um, and again, um, the production, that's what my friend couldn't believe, was, was the lushness and the grandeur of the production, which was done by a certain Mr. George Martin. Oh, yes, right. I'd forgotten he did those albums before. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that... Um, and the the two pieces, <clears throat> there. Um, one was a supposed film tour of a um, un, <clears throat> relatively unimpressive neighborhood of South London called Balham, but it was done <clears throat> as if by Americans. And Peter Sellers does this great <clears throat> fake American narrator. Balham, gateway to the south. And um, <laughs> it's just this wonderful, silly travelogue of nowhere uh, done in this uh, broad American, fake American approach, but with great music, um, great sound effects. Peter does all the voices, all the characters. And um, that's A. And then B <clears throat> is a piece called So Little Time. Um, 
He plays Nancy, and I don't remember her last name, but she's an interviewer from the BBC. <laughs> and she's interviewing a guy very much like um, Elvis Presley's manager. Uh, Colonel Parker. Yeah, this is a major. <laughs> and uh, he's um, he has a stable of young rock and rollers. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's, he's one of these guys. And he brings one out. Twit Conway. Say hello. And Twit Conway is this gormless, as the Brits say, uh, 18-year-old kid who's been chosen to be a rock and roll star. And it's this three-way interview. Um, and um, it's, it's just fabulous. And it's, you know, it's about that era of rock and roll where people would pluck, you know, so unlike today where people would pluck you know, kids with... Uh, Mini, minimum, minimum, minimal talent and sort of groom them uh, to be whatever the market is looking for in rock and roll stars at the moment. Probably nobody could understand that now. No, no, unrelatable. Yeah, but wow. it's brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff, and, and he does, as I say, all the characters, but, but the, you really feel like you're listening to three people having a real conversation, and it's and, and the um, <clears throat> the uh, sort of the iconic moment in it uh, she she asks him uh twit uh, a question and uh he uh, he gets the answer wrong we're we're just good friends is his answer and the major stops and says that is the answer to a different question <laughs> the answer to this question is i just want to be i just want to be an all-round all round entertainer. Time. That's just just wonderfully done. Oh much my god! Better, much better than I did, but it's just unforgettable stuff. I'm gonna have to hunt those down because that's ah uh, yeah. I mean, uh, again, and I uh, half for Peter Sellers and half for George Martin, but that's yeah yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, there's so many. I, I took so many notes, and I'm half half proud of myself for not bringing up the stuff that you get to have to talk about every time you're interviewed. But I, I am just looking here very quick. You know, I, I do want to ask you only because it's on my mind, and I have been interviewing Phil Proctor basically one album by album by album for Firesign about the production. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you first hear Firesign? Well, um, I heard before Firesign. <coughs> Pardon me. Peter had a, a radio show on KPFK in Los Angeles, the radio station of the Trotskyites and the Stalinists. Mm-hmm. Depending, depending on which year you were listening, it was one, one or the other. Um, called Radio Free Oz. Yeah. With um, Paul J. Robbins. And um, so I'd listened to that. This was what, before I got back into a show business. I was teaching school. And I found, uh, found it a fairly mesmerizing show. Um, to, to plant this in time, they ended each show with a raga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tonight's raga is tonight's raga. Um, and then um, fairly soon after, Firesign started doing a show on KPFK. Mm-hmm. And... Fairly soon after the credibility gap started doing our show on KRLA, we were on AM, they were on FM, and I realized that our our fates would be somehow intertwined when a uh, 
Christmas one year, a uh, guy from Chicago came out and wrote a review of our radio show. Very nice review of our radio show. And then said, and not only that, they're coming, they've come out with this new record. And then he reviewed the Fire Signs record as if it was us. And I really, okay. Because we're four guys on the radio. They're four guys on the radio. We're doing, you know, sort of weird comedy. They're doing weird comedy. You know. That's not a horrible compliment, at least. Uh, wow. Oh, no. Fine. Fine. Yeah. It's much better than the one I, 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 I keep as a reminder of how the audience is allowed to have a much broader taste than one might have. Oh, which no. When somebody came up to me once and said, you know, you guys are my favorite comedy group. You and Cheech and Chong. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... They're allowed. Sure. No, of course. I mean, I've I've got I've got Cheech on the wall, but I've also got weird, and I've also got Mike Nichols and Elaine May. I've got a very strange wall of records here. Oh, Mike Nichols and Elaine May stuff. Now, the, have you listened to their records lately? Oh, uh, it's been I would say maybe a year, but not yeah. that long. It's amazing how much of their material has to do with psychoanalysis. Oh yeah, and how and how that dates. Mm-hmm. No, that is true. I mean, there's yeah. I, and I, I say that as a fan, but I went sure. back and looked to it about a year ago, and I just was stunned. At, oh my God, this is all about life on a, you know, this is all about shrink world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've also got on my wall one piece I'm very proud of, which is the only comedy bootleg this bootleg company ever did, and it's a Groucho bootleg. Ooh. Yeah, it's, it's the weirdest, maybe kind of super ugly cover, but it's the only comedy bootleg these guys ever did in the seventies, and it's it's what's on it is radio. Uh, no, it's it's actually I think it's mostly hijacked clips from movies. Uh, ah. Maybe one or two things. I don't think they did any. I think yeah, I think it's just mostly movies, not the boring stuff. Because um, there's just bits and pieces. Uh, there are there are some compilation albums that you can get that's got stuff from. Uh, um, oh my God! His talk, his his game show, which is now escaping. Life. Thank you. You bet your life. So it's got weird, random things. It's they call it the Marx Brothers, but it's mostly just Groucho being silly. Uh, but it's a good one. Um, well, well that, you know that was really interesting because people assumed that the Marx Brothers in the movies were basically. I mean, there were a lot of really good comedy writers who wrote those movies, mm-hmm. and so it was sort of a leap for. Uh, you to see Groucho in that in that late uh, in his career or later in his career game show context and realize um, it, this is him ad libbing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's he's a funny he's a funny motherfucker even without those those great writers around him. Oh know? yeah, oh yeah. God, I love it. and there's and there's always of course that just that little, little twinkle where you can tell he's a bit of a perv but not in a gross way. Like he's yeah, just right. he's a dirty old man but in the most delightful way possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, those eyebrows helped. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> that's true. Um, well, I don't want to keep you any longer, So, and I don't know when this uh, this will come out. I will say, though, this is the 200th episode we've ever recorded, so it's very nice to have you be a part of it. Well, thank you. Um, but is there anything... Well, you, you, you've yeah. been remarkably persistent. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 hope, I hope not too much, so. No, no, it's been fine. Um, is there anything, again, I don't know exactly when this will come out, but if there's something urgent you have to promote, I will put it out sooner. No, no, there's nothing, nothing urgent. Uh, uh, something, something big is coming, but not, not very soon. Okay, so <laughs> if people go to harryshearer.com, is that just the best way to? It's the best way to live. 
Yeah, I agree. I 100% agree. Uh, everything's there. Are you, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're on Twitter. I'm never on Twitter, so I don't remember who's there and who yeah, is Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm not on Facebook. I, I think Facebook is evil, <laughs> but um, uh, I'm the Harry Shearer on Twitter. Okay. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm active on Twitter. Good. I like Twitter. Um, you know, um, for people who, who can write jokes or in a joke form, Twitter is... Twitter's great. Yeah. You know? um, People get afraid yeah. of it, though. They're afraid of burning material. Oh, well. Then, um, <laughs> I'm not. I just don't have the material. Yeah. That's no, it's, but that's, yeah, I, I always, to me, it's always, my, my inspiration is always what's going on in the world. It mm-hmm. has been, you know, that's what I do. So uh, there's always more of that. And especially this year. Good Lord. The material is being delivered to your house fresh daily. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you for being persistent just as a human and as a comedian. It, oh, it's it's important. And it makes me very happy to know that, you know, guys like you and, again, guys like Phil Proctor are still, you know, being badasses in their own way. I uh, thank you again for doing this. Thanks, Jason. Obviously, Bye. you're welcome to do it again uh, if you have the time. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune into the new Stand Up channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. In 2012, Stolen Dress Entertainment brought you the feature-length mockumentary Looking Forward, the story of one 24-year-old man's presidential campaign, 12 years in advance of eligibility, and 16 years in advance of a good slogan. Now, in 2016, in anticipation of an historic election season, Stolen Dress Entertainment brings you the sequel, Looking Forward, 2016. Fourteen of the story's central characters will present video blogs, bringing you their side of the story. On the day following the election in November, the strangest, most unorthodox film sequel in history will be completed. Visit LookingForwardMovie.com to see every video as it is posted and to watch the original film for free. Subscribe to the channels you like, retweet the characters, and share your thoughts on the Looking Forward page on Facebook. Looking Forward 2016. One campaign in pieces.